Welcome to the Pastor Soapbox. I am not your normal host, Seymour Heligar. I am delighted to be here, though, and thankful for Seymour including me in this work. It's a privilege to be with you today. My name is Eric Dodson. I am the pastor of Grace Community Baptist Church in Elgin, Texas. I've been friends with Seymour since our time in seminary, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to join him here on the Pastor Soapbox today. Today, I want to talk to you about an issue that I think is very important. In fact, I think it's probably the crucial issue of our day that is not being addressed sufficiently, not being addressed adequately, and just not really on the radar of many Christians, but it's vital that we understand it and then we commit ourselves to it. By that, I mean the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. I think no other doctrine outside of the gospel of how one is saved is more vital to the church today than a, a revival of sorts in our understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, to begin with today, I want to define terms. I'm going to try to break this discussion of the sufficiency of Scripture up into two parts. And so today, I want to begin by defining the terms. The Baptist Catechism in question four asks, what is the Word of God? With the answer, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God, the only certain rule of faith and obedience. This important brief answer speaks to a couple of key aspects as we understand the Scripture, as we understand the Word of God. First, it speaks to its identification. The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are what we mean by the Word of God. They are the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. It also speaks to authority. They are the word of God. They are not the word of men, but they are the word of God. And therefore, they have ultimate authority. They are the only certain rule of faith and obedience. This is right in line with the classic Reformed doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture is the ultimate authority because it comes from God who has all authority in himself. And this short answer in the Baptist Catechism also speaks to the sufficiency of Scripture. It says the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testament, are the Word of God and the only certain rule of faith and obedience. Scripture are the certain rule of faith and obedience. That is sufficient for all that we need. Now, the 1689 Confession is a little more robust than the Catechism, and it says, beginning in chapter 1, paragraph 1, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Let me read that again for you. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Both of these brief quotations, and certainly there are other historic creeds and confessions that speak to this, but both of these brief quotations hit on something very vital to our understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. The doctrine of sufficiency cannot be rightly understood apart from understanding its link to the nature of God's Word and ultimately understanding its link to the nature of God Himself. Because God is true... His word is true. It is without any error, without any error. Because God has ultimate sovereign authority, his word has ultimate authority. Scripture is not sufficient because men say so. 
Scripture is sufficient because the holy, perfect, true God is its author. Let me say that again. Scripture is not sufficient because men in any period of history have said so, but rather Scripture is a sufficient because the holy, perfect, and true God is its author. That's vital to our understandings, friends. We have to start there. Now, to discuss the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, we're not going to appeal mainly to historic creeds and confessions, even though they can, as those two instances I just read, provide some helpful understanding. They can provide some brief, concise understanding. But we appeal to Scripture. Scripture tells us about itself. And again, because Scripture is true, because the God who writes Scripture is true, it is the best source we have for understanding what we mean by sufficiency of Scripture. And there's one key text that really stands above all other texts of Scripture with, a, with regard to addressing this issue, and that is Psalm 19. If you have a Bible handy, go ahead and turn there with me. Psalm 19. I'm going to read this whole psalm. Psalm 19, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, you probably know if you have been in the church long, if you have been in particularly in evangelical circles of the church for very long, you probably know that this text teaches us about two aspects of God's revelation. That is his general revelation, his revelation that we see in nature, in what he has created, and his specific or special revelation, which we see in his word. And Psalm 19 tells us that there are two important similarities between general and special or specific revelation. First, both of them are of divine origin. Both general revelation and special revelation have their origin in God. He created creation. He is the creator. He created the world and the universe and all that it contains in six literal days. He is the creator. He is also the creator, the author of scripture. Both general and special revelation have divine origins. They are divine revelation. And we also see that both of them glorify God. 
ultimately the chief end of man and the chief end of all things is to bring glory to God in both general revelation, that is creation, and special revelation, that is his word, have their aim to the glory of God. But if you notice, as I was reading the psalm, there are some differences. Notice in Psalm 19, with regard to general revelation, we have a description of what it does. This, the scripture, the psalm, uses words like tell, declare, pours forth speech, revelation, or reveals. That is what general revelation does. It reveals. We also have this illustration of how it reveals using the sun is illustrated as a runner running its course. Now, that's all that is really revealed of general revelation. It's divine in nature. It brings glory to God, just like special revelation. And it reveals, it tells, it declares, it pours forth speech. Just as the sun is a great illustration, brings glory to God. Now, contrast that with special revelation. When this psalm speaks of special special revelation, we get an understanding of its effects. What does it do? It restores the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It warns God's servant, and it rewards God's servant. These are different understandings of the effects of this revelation. It does all these things. It also speaks to the quality of this special revelation. It says that it is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, it is true. So unlike with general revelation where we tell what it does, it tells, it declares, it pours forth speech, and then we have this illustration using the sun, with special revelation we begin to discuss its effects, what it accomplishes in the life of God's chosen, of God's servant. And we also see its quality. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. General revelation is from God and leaves us without excuse. Special revelation is God's perfect, effective, and sufficient revelation. What a glorious psalm for us to study. And I pray that as you maybe wrap up this episode and you think on this, that you'll read through the psalm a few times and just allow yourself to dwell on, to meditate long on what it says of how God has chosen to reveal himself, both in general and special revelation. I do want you to note that it doesn't describe them sim- or it doesn't describe them in the same way, and it doesn't describe them equally. We are not told of general revelation that it is perfect, that it is sure, that it is true, because all of general revelation is now under the curse of sin, so it is no longer those things. But we are told of God's word that it is those things. It is perfect, it is sure, it is true, it is pure, it is clean. Now, also notice that that sets a different standard. Yes, Divine revelation in creation is glorious. Yes, it should cause us to praise God. It does leave us without excuse in knowing that there is a God. But it is not on the same level in terms of its purity, in terms of its effectiveness, in terms of its sufficiency as special revelation. It's important that we understand that because there will be those who will tell you that this text is their basis for 
observances that they claim in general revelation being on the same level as being revelation from God in terms of its effectiveness and its sufficiency and its authority. And that should be flatly rejected. Yes, general revelation does, in fact, reveal God, but it does not do so in the same way. It does not do so in a perfect way, in the way that special revelation, that scripture does. Now, there are a couple of other key texts that we want to consider as we think about, again, just this first part. I'm just giving you a primer on the sufficiency of Scripture. And there are a couple of other key texts that we want to consider. The first is 2 Peter 1.3. 2 Peter 1.3 tells us that God, by His divine power, has granted us everything we need for life and godliness. Did you hear that, friend? Not just some things, but everything that we need for life and godliness. And he has granted that to us through the true knowledge of him. Now, as we've just seen in Psalm 19, we've already seen that the perfect source of true knowledge of him is scripture, is his true, perfect, inerrant, infallible word. So if through the true knowledge of him, we have everything that we need for life and godliness, We can say that scripture, which provides a true knowledge of him, is his means for providing us everything that we need for life and godliness. The other text that we want to make sure to consider in understanding this is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, and you may have this memorized, friend, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good word. Let me read that to you again. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Again, we see in this passage the source of scripture. It is given to us by divine inspiration. It is breathed out by God. We also see what scripture is given by God for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then we see its effect. It makes adequate the man of God. It makes adequate the believer. That is, it equips the believer for every good work. Now listen, friend, I know we've covered a lot in this passage so or in this episode so far. And in the next episode, we will deal, Lord willing, with prominent objections and common challenges to this doctrine. Even objections and challenges that come from within the so-called evangelical church. But I want to give you some general things to consider today that will likely help you address any objection to this doctrine, any objection to a true understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. First, consider, is there any work which humanity, particularly Christians, should need insight into that would not be included in every good work? You see, as we just read in 2 Timothy 3, Scripture provides us what we need to be equipped for every good work. Is there anything that's that Christians should do, that humanity, frankly, should do, should need insight into that would not be included as every good work? Is there anything that humanity should not or Christians should not want 
to respond to in a way that is godly and righteous. That is not godly and righteousness, I should say. Is there anything that we should not want to respond to in a way that is godly and righteous? Well, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, we are given everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to respond to life in a way that is godly and righteous. Is there any authority who is perfect and true other than God? Is there any other source of knowledge or source of wisdom that is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true? You see, friends, people will tell you things like, yes, scripture is sufficient, I agree with that, but it's not exhaustive. It doesn't have everything. Well, if scripture is true, it tells us that it has everything we need for life and godliness. It tells us that it has what we need to be equipped for every good work. So friends, think on these things. Perhaps you need to consider what you have viewed as the sufficiency of scripture. For that, I just want to turn your attention back to where we began with Psalm 19. And I want to read to you the prayer at the end of Psalm 19, where the psalmist, in response to this consideration of God and his word, his revelation of himself, prays this. He says, Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Friends, that is a great prayer. In light of this meditation upon, this discussion of the revelation of God, he prays for protection and repentance of sin. He prays that the Lord would turn him back from sin. And he prays that the Lord would guide his words and his meditation in accordance with what God has revealed. So let me encourage you. If you've already thought yourself committed to the sufficiency of scripture, or if maybe you are hearing of this doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture in this way for the first time, consider the scriptures that I have laid before you today. Meditate long on them. Pray that the Lord would keep you from having an understanding of him that is contrary to his word. And pray that the Lord would show you those ways in which your meditations, those things that you devote your thoughts to, those ideologies that you give your attention to, maybe those disciplines of learning that you have devoted much of your time to, are they in accordance with scripture? Are you submitting those things to scripture? If not, let me invite you to pray that the Lord would, in his great kindness, lead you in repentance and help you to guard the meditation of your heart, the words of your mouth, and make sure that they are consistent with, that they are in accordance to, that they are submitted to the authority of his perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true word. Thank you for joining me today on the Pastor Soapbox. Thank you, Seymour, for having me on this. Hopefully next time, in part two, we'll discuss some of the prominent objections to this doctrine. Have a great day.